From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Danda, and today I have my awesome co-host with me again, Vera Meth. How are you doing? Hi, Paddy. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. It's early morning, but I'm awake, and like I said to you before, <laughs> I'm glad I got out of bed in time for this. How are you doing, Paddy? I'm good. I feel refreshed because I've just been on holiday and it was really nice just to spend some time with the family. I try to switch off from social media and everything. And I think you sometimes need to do that, don't you? Just to give your kids and the family that presence and that dedication. So yeah, it's been good. Yeah, sounds good. It's good to have a refresh and stop and think about other things rather than the monotonous work. Yeah. Yeah. What have been some of your dilemmas recently, Vera? Because I love hearing about your dilemmas. <laughs> the latest dilemma has been thinking about my future. So a coach uh, that I know set me the challenge to envision where do I see my life in the next five years? And what started off as a small exercise has really got me thinking about, oh my goodness, what do I want to do? I've got to change. I don't want to stay doing the same thing forever. So I've been in deep thought, very deep thought. Well, I think we have someone that might be able to help you today, Vera. So <laughs> without further ado, I want to welcome our guest, Dr. Kamal Hoti, who's OBE, ranked in the top 100 most influential Black, Asian and minority ethnic leaders in the UK. She was awarded an OBE back in 2017, and I can see a picture of her on a website meeting King Charles. So. I'm really curious to know some of the stories that she's got for us today. And I am even more excited because we've got three Punjabis on a Zoom call together. And yeah, there might be some Bangra at some point. But yeah, that's just a sign of the times. I think it's amazing to see that. So Kamal, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Paddy. Really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, and I know you've been jet-setting recently. Do you want to tell us where you've been? Yeah, so the first one was we went to Dubai and so I was doing some work out there. My son said, Mum, you want to go a bit earlier and stay a few extra days? And I thought oh, that was nice of him. And he said, because they were going and he goes, can you babysit? <laughs> so I stayed in a week in Dubai and had a lovely time with my five-year-old and two-year-old grandsons. So looking after them while my son and daughter-in-law jetted off and doing all sorts of things. From there, I came back to London for a couple of days and then flew out to Atlanta, where I was speaking at the audit conference, which was a big audit conference in Atlanta, and uh, trying to pivot their very technical conference to helping them understand their purpose. So that was challenging, but interesting, but so humbled with the reaction that I got. So, And then came back just a few days ago, and then I had another conference that I was speaking at on Monday. So it's been a bit, few travels, so a bit jet lagged. Wow, a busy woman indeed. Well, we appreciate you spending the time with us today. And that brings me on to what superpower would you like to bring onto this episode? So actually just talking on through what I talked at Lanter about, I think one of my, I mean, it was very hard to pin one down, but I would love to talk about purpose. 
for me, that's the catalyst of everything that's driven me, whether it's in my personal life or in my career life. And it's helped me in a number of ways, but it's also forced me to face into a few things that have been quite challenging as well. So purpose is the, is the key one I'd love to, to focus on. I know you've got an extraordinary story and background. So would you care to tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, sure. So if I start with my career first, so to be honest, I wanted to be a doctor or a nurse. That was my vision. But we came here in the 60s and unfortunately my father, who was a civil engineer, like many, didn't was unable to use his skills. So he became quite bitter. So he didn't allow me to go on to further education. So really that was out the, the frame. But I ended up getting a job as a cashier in a bank. And I speak several languages in our community. And then suddenly the community heard there was this little Indian girl on the counter that could help us navigate banking. So I started realizing that actually I had something to add. And that's when I talk about purpose and you can help your community. And a few decades later, became the first ever Asian bank manager in the UK, which was so exciting. But at the same time, very challenging because they pointed me in a branch called Walton on Thames. And if you're here in the UK, if you know Walton on Thames, it's the most upper class British area that you could put somebody that like me as a woman and a woman of color. Um, so that was quite an eye opener and really built what I call my resilience to the way that the customers reacted. Those that want to want to talk to me and want to talk to the male colleague that was there before. But I continued working hard. And from there, I started leading about 160 branches over another decade. And then we had a huge merger between two banks. That then resulted in one computer system to being designed to our call centers going to India. And we just literally took our eye off the ball, which is our customers and the complaints that are going through the roof. And one of the things that I feel that always conscious about, I don't think I have all the answers, but I couldn't understand what was going on. So I created an initiative called Working Together Smarter, which was bringing in people from the back office, the front office to collaborate, to really understand which process was causing what niggle. We identified about 3,000 little niggles that we improved and my area started doing really well. And I'd always want to praise and call out, I call my hero, but nowadays I think you call them allies. The executive director saw the data and he was curious about why I was doing so well. And he came down to see me and I explained this initiative I started. And then he went off and he said, really good. And he left me his calling card. About... Six months later, the merger really bit. My area got cut up and unfortunately my role disappeared. And I was, you can imagine how disappointed I was feeling. And they were offering me jobs that I didn't really want to do. And then I came across Paul's car, gave him a call. And I said, look, Paul, they're redundant. And he said, yeah, I remember you. And he go, why don't you get on a train? Come and talk to me. And it's the first time, Paddy, I got on the train, went to see Paul. And he said, look, I loved your initiative. I haven't had the time to implement it. Why do you come and work for me? And let's roll it out over two and a half thousand branches. So if there's any listeners out here who, I mean, you can imagine my stomach just fell through the floor. I didn't even know what the back end of a bank looked like. But it was with his confidence in my initiative, that's what gave me the courage to step over. So jumping from retail to another division that I didn't even know what it looked like, I think I would encourage anyone not to get too hung up about, I don't know about this area, or I don't, haven't got this, or the knowledge you can learn is the skills that you bring across. And it was doing that initiative that I'm proud to say did really well. And I became more senior and senior. But as I was the whole, only woman now of color working in head office environment, the microaggressions or a paddy in, I call them paper cuts. 
where somebody will say something or somebody will ignore you, especially if I was the only woman sharing a room full of men. Oh, it's a little Indian lady. Come and pour the tea. And to be honest, I was colluding with them. And I said, yeah, no problem, because thinking if I could please them, I could win them over. But it was just getting worse. Those microaggressions, I think, really started playing on my mind. And I wasn't really getting what I wanted to get through. People were asking me, challenging me constantly, which was so unfair. And so I started talking about other ethnic minorities, other women, to see what, you know, did they feel like this? So I set up the first ever ethnic minority network and women's network across the banking industry. And there was someone from the government who heard me speak and they said, enough pitching for the Olympic Games here in London in 2012, but we need to improve our supply diversity across procurement. Could you lead the task force for us? It's a voluntary role. It's in the evening. To be honest, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't even know what they were talking about, procurement, supply diversity. But it's a voluntary role and I took it. And if I could encourage anyone, I love your quote on your website, Paddy, that you talk about when Gandhi said, when you're in service of others, that's when you really truly find yourself. And I did that role and the first meetings were a total disaster. I couldn't understand the jargon. But 18 months later, it's the best white paper across government. It really shifted the way that procured contracts. It became the, the key thing, the bid for the Olympic Games, which we won in London. And then my bank became the headline sponsor. So... But what it did for me, it was the first time outside of my organization, people thought I was so much more senior, they're hanging on every single word I'm saying, that it really boosted my confidence. So when you do volunteering outside of your sector or anybody else, I think that it really is not just for others. You do get so much back. And it was on the back of that that I'm married to an entrepreneur who's constantly saying access to finance was difficult, that my bank didn't, and we're the biggest bank, we didn't have the products. We were putting adverts on ZTV channel, the Asian channel, mid-afternoon trying to attract him, but my mother-in-law was watching it. And so I started exploring. And once again, when I talk about inclusion and diversity, I always think, what's in it for them? The bank's not a charity. Why would they want to be interested in looking at the Asian community? And then I saw the sectors that the community was growing in, and they were the same sectors that the bank wanted to explore. So I shared this idea with my, my mentor. Again, Aris, he didn't steal my idea. He said, look, I think you've got something here. Why don't you present it in front of the chairman and the CEO? And again, sometimes the door opens and I was so nervous. And he goes, I'll coach you. You've got 20 minutes. And they loved it. But so they said, why don't you come and get seconded, work under Arif, but we haven't got the budget to backfill your role. And this is when I'm talking about purpose. I felt I had something here that I wanted to do it, not just for the bank, but for my community, I could see the entrepreneurs. There was all this negativity, a bit like now, about all of these immigrants coming in and so forth. But yet we were adding so much value to the bottom line of here in the British society that I wanted to showcase them. So it was for me, it was more about a bit of quid pro quo. If I could help my community, it'll help the bank. So I took on that risk and they said, look, we haven't got a budget to back fill your role. That means if six months time, if this isn't successful, you can lose your job. It was a bit of a challenge talking to my husband, trying to convince him I was going to take on this risk. But when you do find purpose, as I said, it really pushed my fear away. It pushed my, I had a bully voice. I always call it a bully voice, that microaggression in your head. That's always saying you can't do this or you shouldn't be here. But that when you have purpose, it really dialed down that voice in my head. I really passionately wanted to do this. So I jumped across. So I designed products. I'm not a product designer. I worked with the marketing team, pulled all of these marketing budgets in. We designed the Asian Jewel Awards. We designed the, the Asian Women of Achievement Awards. 
But more importantly, I trained up to 500 of our execs on how to network in our community so that they knew how to talk to the elders of our community, had a network of floor of a thousand entrepreneurs in, a, in an award ceremony. And I'm proud to say, slowly, we started really winning new business. And my profile started getting higher and higher. And then my third hero I'll call out here is Truett Tate, this tall American who came from Citibank, saw what I was doing. And they said, well, why don't you come across corporate banking and let's take this globally? Once again, I'm talking about a career of nearly 40 years of three individuals, and I'm trying to crash it in. But they were pivotal in my <clears throat> courage to move across. So I worked for Truett. And I loved his empathetic style and his leadership and was so authentic. And that's where I think I got my courage to be myself. And I'm proud to say we became leaders in the market within four years. And then Paddy, you probably heard about the 2008 <laughs> banking crisis. We were the strongest bank. We were asked to rescue another bank and unfortunately took us down with it. And our share price tumbled from £10 to 22p. The government which felt a bit unfair, asked a new board to be appointed. Antonia came from Santander. It became very Portuguese and Spanish. And Truett spoke to the new CEO and said, look, you're going to have to rebuild trust with customers and pride with colleagues. This is a woman here who's done it creatively for me before. Maybe she'll stay on. So I was asked to stay on and once again jumped into the CEO's office to really look at creative way of doing all of this stuff. We were now 80% owned by the government. So then I started thinking, Vera and Paddy, if volunteering could have done that for me, really pushed me to understand my purpose, could I find something that I could do that for my colleagues? So I started partnering up with three universities to look at the halo effect of volunteering. And I'm proud to say that I could measure that people were coming back much more agile thinking, much more creative, much more loyal to the boss who allowed them to go in the first place. So I took on Mental Health UK and Simon Society. We don't even have a name for dementia in our Asian community. So once again, I was trying to pivot and see what else we could do. And I'm proud to say over the six years, I turned the bank around with the help of Antonio and we paid the government back. In 2017, I did get an OBE by King Charles for all the work I was doing on culture. So now, and then Her Majesty came to me and said, could you set up, she wanted me to look after her Commonwealth Trust Fund, which is across 54 countries on social change of youth. So I've been involved with her foundation and was working very closely with Prince Harry on that to really push the boundaries, especially in the Asian community about Alzheimer's and dementia. So I've been a spokesperson for them there. And then Lloyds of London, the insurance market, asked me to sit on the ESG committee to look at culture and uh, climate change across the insurance sector. And then finally, I met a young man called Gian Power about three months after I retired. And uh, he set up TLC Lines, which is a company where we go into corporates to look at inclusion, well-being and talent development. So I coach on how to tell stories, but I also give strategic advice to these corporates on those parameters that have been around for ages. And I'm proud to say we're supporting about 300 companies on that front. So that's what I do at the moment and uh, love what I do. So hopefully that helps. Wow. I think that's why I let you do your own introduction. <laughs> come up because there's so much there that could be that 10 episodes that we could unpick just there i worked in banking for about six years for deutsche bank and i think a lot of the work that i was doing i almost take it for granted that hey women have always had these opportunities most of my bosses in banking were women and the diversity of our office was amazing yet when you went into that industry it must have been very different I'm going to hand over to Vera now because I've talked a lot and I know she's been itching to ask you lots of questions. So Vera, over to you. 
Hi folks, sorry for the quick interruption, but before we continue with this awesome episode, I have a huge favor to ask. If you're enjoying these conversations and you're finding it's giving you value in your daily challenges, then I'd be extremely grateful if you could leave a short review and subscribe to whichever platform you're either watching or listening to this episode on. That's it. Let's get back into the episode. Thank you, Paddy. Yeah, it was really striking to hear about your career journey, Camel. It's more than just a career journey. It's like you've become this powerful change agent, not just for the industry, but more than that for community as well. And it's actually through some colleague friends at my work who are heading up the women's events who let me know about you and your career and also I think what caught my attention is how you broke free of like this mold that being put on you you had an expectation and I know from a similar cultural background that it can weigh quite heavy on you and I wasn't even aware of a lot of this and I have to say it's only within the last couple of years that I realized I just accepted all these really limiting beliefs about myself and what I should be doing yeah so I is a it's a selfish question for me but I think it'll help others as well I'm just wondering if we can go deeper into how you broke free of those kind of norms or expectations Thank you, Vera, because that's where I really like to talk about, because I painted this picture, which is, remember, a career spanning over 42 years, and it's not long, well, actually longer than that now. However, behind the scenes, I was born in India, came here in the 60s, faced a lot of the racism that happened in the Enoch Powell's era. We're Sikhs, like Paddy, you've said, and my brothers wore turbans and my father did, and they had to, then dad took them to cut their hair and cut his own hair in order to integrate. And he became really bitter because he couldn't use, he built one of the biggest dams in India and Bakra Dam and was recognized by Prime Minister Nehru. And so when Britain called to the Commonwealth, come to Britain, my dad was a very proud man and thought, oh, I'm going to build bridges and I'm going to do this and help Britain, but ended up working in a factory where he wasn't really recognized for his skills. So he became, a, he had a huge chip on his shoulder, which played out the way that he parented us and I was the youngest of six. So I was controlled very tightly by my brothers and everybody else in the household. Being here at six, I've gone through the education system, So, but he wouldn't let me go into college. And so I ended up, as I said, Vera as a cashier. And about 18 months later came home and they were going to see this boy that had been introduced to them, the first boy that somebody's mentioned. And I just turned 19. And they came back two hours later and said, the dad said, look, yeah, he's an accountant, big family. There's so many similarities. They come from a similar background to us back home in Punjab. So I've said, yes, and you're getting married in three months time. So when you talk about how did I break those norms or to be honest, I didn't. And so literally at the age of 19, just turned 19, I had an arranged marriage and I never met my husband before, never met the family before. And I know in your generation, it's not so much now arranged marriages, sometimes introductions, or you now do have the kudos to find your own partners. But this was a time when really you trusted your brothers, your family, everything was given to them. But I remember my mum as I was leaving my home, and my mother was a very sweet religious woman who did find it hard to adapt to the society, to, especially after 
seeing her son's hair being cut and accepting it all, but she never challenged my father. And she said to me, taking the palm of her hand, come on in this palm of your hand, you're taking my honour with you. Make me proud. Now, can you imagine talking to a 19-year-old like that now? And she said, your number one duty is to take care of your in-laws. They're very elderly. Number two is to be a dutiful wife. Don't nag him because he might beat you, might leave you. And if you've got any problems, you never air that laundry outside of the family home. Protect the honour of your family. Those were my pep talks. That was my boundaries. And that's at the age of 19, I landed in here. And it was a very strict household where the men were the superior in everything. And my husband had a pep talk given to him that this girl's been mainly brought up here. Make sure she understands the duties of the daughter-in-law, which is doing the chores and You and I know that when you're in that sort of environment, my age generation, there's a real hierarchy of women. So I was at the bottom of this huge pit. And I'm going to share something with on our wedding night. My husband got out a family chart to explain to me what the family tree looked like. And this is my uncles, my aunts, my nephews, my nieces. And that's you. Wow, big family. Then he gets another child out. And this is honest, God's truth. And he said, right, in five years' time, I expect my first child. Another five years' time, I expect my second child. He goes, my job is to get all of us out of poverty, your job, even if you have to act like a servant, that's how I want you to behave. 19. Only wedding night. That was my memory. And this job, you don't need to work. But it was my, f- I did have an ally, my wonderful father-in-law, this elderly gentleman who couldn't read and write, quite elderly, but more older than my mother-in-law, took me to one side and said, come on, if you want to carry on working, just don't tell the women what you do. But when you come home, you're going to have to do all the chores and what's expected of you. And if you can balance that, I know that's not the advice I would give to any daughter-in-law of mine now. But at that time, it was what I needed. So for me, Vera, my work was my escapism. It was me getting out of the household and going to work. Yes, at work, it was very male-dominated. Yes, I was facing microaggressions. Yes, in, in fact, sometimes even racist comments. And I just shared my 40-odd year career, but can you imagine for 20-odd years to become a bank manager? I needed exams for that, and I'd never gone to college. And again, once again, it was dad's wisdom. He said, look, can't you do these exams at home? So I started ordering these books by correspondence, and when everyone would go to bed, I'd get my books out. And my father would see the light on, and he'll come and sit next to me just to encourage me to carry on. So you can't do this on your own. This is not just a couple show. There are people in my life that if I hadn't been there, I would never become the woman I became. And it was his, his encouragement that I got through the exams. When I became the first ever bank manager, they wanted to do all this PR, first Asian woman, bankman. I was too scared because I didn't want to tell anybody at home. So they didn't, I didn't even talk about it. We didn't celebrate it. So when I was coming home, it was like, okay, being very subservient because that's what my role was. But unfortunately, as I got more senior and senior in my profile, especially the Asian strategy, I was talking on TV, I was doing radio interviews. So no matter what was happening in my career, and trajectory sounds really great, but remember I was also challenged quite a lot in the banking world. But for me, that was nothing compared to the challenges I was facing at home. So that's where I think the resilience came. They can't harm me at work. 
But when I was doing something, when I was finding my purpose in a project or creating something that I was making a difference in the work lives of my customers or my colleagues or leading them with empathy, I felt I was creating a world that I wanted back home. And I think that's when I talk about purpose. When you find purpose, it gives you that resiliency. It gives you that empowerment to go and do something. So slowly, I think at home, Vera, what really started helping was people do change. And mother-in-law became my biggest ally, my biggest advocate at home, because she saw actually Gumball's not changing our environment. She's not coming home and what they were fearful of, being westernised and refusing to do things, refusing to go to the weddings or the funerals or whatever the daughter-in-laws are responsible for. In fact, she's coming home. And so when they chose to live with me, she became my protector. She became my advocate and talking to the community about me. And she passed away just before the first lockdown, three years ago. And now I'm the most senior woman in the household and I've got the sons are married. I've got two daughter-in-laws. So life is a new chapter for me. And I'm learning now to be a modern mother-in-law. And I really want to shake that up. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But so to, to answer to your question was just a long one. What you see sometimes, and when Paddy, when you introduced me, Dr. Kamal Hodi OBE, people think, oh gosh, wow, you've got there and it must have been easy for you. Or that's what you see and that's what you read. But everybody here I'm sure listening in, including yourself, have your own personal stories. And it's not a competition that my story is more traumatic than yours. Is how do we learn from those challenges? Usually in our personal lives is banking those challenges, learning from them in order to move forward. And sincerely, I always ask Vahiguru, how can I be a better version of myself today than I was yesterday? What can I do to help somebody else? That they wouldn't have to go through what I went through. And when I get feedback or when somebody will come to me and say, come on, oh, thank you so much, or this is, and that, that fueling of the soul is where I think we all need to be. I'm just going to pause there. <laughs> I don't know. It's a long answer to your one question, Vera, but hopefully it's given you a bit of insight to really the real gumball. Yeah, I could keep listening. But wow, that really does show how powerful a purpose can be. Yeah, so I had been thinking, how do I break through all these limiting beliefs? And I guess maybe if you just focus on your purpose, it pulls you out of that anyway. And I really resonated as well with how you had allies. Paddy, what are your thoughts? Oh God, that was, it was a, I had a lump in my throat there as well. Kamal, because I resonated with some of those stories, not because I've personally been through them. I even remember when I got married and I'm an only child, so I had a duty to my parents. And so they had always said to me, it'd be nice if you could, when you get married, live in the same household. And so we do, we live with my parents now. And my wife in those early days had lots of similar challenges, not that extreme, but there's a massive adjustment and there's a lot of expectation on her. So I tried to partner with her as much as I could, but I wasn't equipped. I just had no idea, never been through this situation before. And so I can totally relate to some of those kind of moments. And now people say to me, oh, Paddy, you're really lucky. You've got a babysitter at home. Like your parents live with you. And I'm like, yes, but you don't see all of the other aspects of 
living in a big family because there's always ups and downs. And I have to say, I am very blessed and they are cool. My parents are really cool. But there are moments when, you know, your wife's going, oh my God, your mum's doing my head in or someone else is having a complaint. And it's just like, I'm stuck in the middle. How do I deal with this? So I totally relate to some yeah. of that. So on that note, Harry, which is when I said I'm trying to be a modern mother-in-law, having gone through 38 years of not war with my own mother-in-law, who is a very dominating individual in some ways, protected me, but other ways was very dominating. So even if I remember the scenario, I was actually with Her Majesty Queen in Buckingham Palace, 58 ambassadors, I was hosting them and all of this stuff. And then I come home thinking full of pride. Of, and then when I come home, my mother, you put too much salt in the dar last night. <laughs> okay, bump back to ground level. And so all I would say is I want my daughter-in-laws to have careers. And we have these pep talks and I want them to if they don't want to have a career that's fine so Priya's a deputy head assistant a deputy head teacher she's got twin sons who are just turned four so she's working part-time Parmi works worked for Disney now she works for Sky and she wants to go back for, she is now full-time and she's just had you know her youngest child is two years old so I've got these four grandchildren and all the sons as well but more importantly it's my sons that I hope in the last eight 10 years is trying to help them navigate to be different type of husbands. Their father has done us so proud financially and got us to where we've got to and created this huge property business, which my son's now as an architect and an accountant have come back into the company and they've taken it to another level. But we're really learning from our uncles. We're really learning from our other elders and previous lives of what worked well and what doesn't work well. How do you support the next generation? Uh, they're much more risk takers than my husband is. My daughter-in-laws are much more feistier than I ever could even imagine talking to somebody like the way. But actually, life has moved on. And when you talk about extended family, so we were living in one big house. And then when my younger daughter-in-law became pregnant again, I sat my husband down. I said, look, to have four grandchildren on the age of three at that time in one household with them, the boys in a business together, there was such a huge risk that like you say, if tiny little things go wrong and, you know, the daughter-in-laws get involved and the sons will get involved. And I said, there's a risk here that we have to man up, that there must be another way to live in an extended family. So we actually took the courage to move our younger son out. And he, I remember him asking, so mum, have we done something wrong? Or I said, no, I'm just trying to help protect the future of our inner circle. And now Priya and Vivir, they've been living with us for eight years since their marriage. I think it's time for them as well. So the household, which he designed and built, is a beautiful home. I'm very privileged to be living here. And our mother-in-law's gone as well, so her annex is free. But however, they do need their space. Even though there's enough physical space, it is that mental space. So maybe in about 18 months, we'll be leaving this home and moving out. But the connections are there, that I'm available when they need us. And so I said I went to Dubai this is the first time in six years being asked, can you come and babysit full time? Even though we live together, I think my generation as a mother-in-law, I have to be invited into that. And it's really difficult not to interfere. It's really difficult to say, well, in my olden days, we did this and this is how you bring up your children. Yes, only if they invite that conversation. And that's really challenging when you're so used to solving problems at work. You just want to jump in and solve when you can see and you know where the car crash is going is to hold back. They need to find their own car crashes and then step in. And I must say, Paddy, 
I have found this transition very difficult without mum being here now, my mother-in-law not being here now. My own mum died 25 years ago. No elders now that I can turn to for just that counsel and for them to wrap their arms around me. And even though I'm turning 60, I still feel as a child I need somebody to look after me. And when that seniority is gone, you feel really vulnerable. So we always, that curiosity, that purpose hasn't changed. So what's my purpose now as a mother-in-law? What's my purpose as a grandmother? What's the role I play here? What's my purpose as a wife? I've never lived with my husband on his own. I've never lived in a family. I've always lived in big families. So we're thinking about moving out. What would that look like? I've got no idea. But it's for the bigger purpose of the family, the bigger purpose of my children, that's giving me the courage to say, this is the right thing to do. You know, it will play out. Have faith in, in that hope that there will be happiness in these moments as we go along. But to enjoy the moments now, which is not something we've been used to. It's always been five years ahead, Vera. What are we doing in five years' time? Where are we going to take it? And on that note, on your five-year plan, yes, those questions your coach asked you. The only thing I would ask, we started adding underneath there, or I've added underneath there, is the timelines of all those people that mattered to me. How old will they be in five years' time? How old will my grandchildren will be in five years' time? Because that then prompts certain questions to move it forward. Wow. Yeah, there's so much there because I'm realizing now purpose isn't just about one thing from what I've been hearing from you. It's like a lifelong discovery and it's always changing and it's not just dependent on what you want, but those you care about, your family as well. And I know there's some things we letting go of from our culture, but there are also some fantastic things to keep as well. And that is like the valuing valuing the family, keeping connected. And at that that point there, I know especially females in our communities got so much pressure and they don't want to be their mums or their mother-in-laws because that's the first thing my daughter, we admire you what you've done in your career, mum, but we do not want to be the daughter-in-law that you've been. I understand it. I get it. I don't want them to go gone through what I went through. However, I would say there's an English saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are so much goodness in our culture, our framework of support, structure, community support. Surely that's what's missing in society at the moment. Everything's about being independent. Absolutely stand on your two feet. That's what I want my children to do. That's what my grandchildren... But that doesn't mean don't step back and don't be open to wisdom of others and mentoring of others even though there might be relations or whatever. It's learning and listening. It's up to you what you take in. But don't be so arrogant to think, I know how I want my life to live. Trust me, as I said, I'm 60. I'm still learning. I love having these interactions. And the reason I agree to this is, what can I learn from this today? What is it more that I can do that I may not have been, I've been blinded to? So be open, be curious about life in general. But understand your purpose and your values. And if you stick to those, I think that's a good navigating point of, is it about money? Is it about titles? Or is it about giving back? Whatever that might be. Then you feel a bit more content with where your life is taking you because you're living to your purpose, your values, both at home and at work. It's really interesting you say that, Kamal, because I read lots of research about how we've never been more lonely than we are now. 
and society generally feels very lonely. So having that support network around you, especially that family unit, I think is, it can be just a godsend for many people just to have someone to lean on. And as you mentioned, having your elders around you as being that blanket of support, do totally understand where you're coming from on that. Now, my question that I had was around, how do you find your purpose? Because if somebody out there is thinking about what is my purpose, then we often have lots of things that we're really passionate about. But can you give us any tips and even a process that people could follow to find that purpose, that thing that they should really focus on? Well, first of all, Paddy, like Vera, you summarized it really well, that purpose changes and the word purpose can be quite big. Dr. King had a purpose. Gandhi had a purpose. Those are iconic individuals. They had a vision and they followed that purpose. But purpose for me, when I go back into my career, in the beginning was the branch. I wanted to build it into this branch that is my second family, I used to call it. They are like my second family. So for me, purpose is actually, where do I get my happiness from? What is it that makes me go into work, really skipping in, doing something that, or it's a project that I can visualize. There's so much here we can improve upon. That used to get me excited. So maybe it's not the word purpose is too huge. It could be just purely, what is it that you're doing that you want to say, this is my legacy? Even if it's just a project, this is the part that I played that improved this, or actually I can visualize this and I want to, this is where I want to take it. So it purpose for me is that forward thinking of what is my role in this? What do I want to achieve in this? And then measuring yourself against it. And through that journey, as you get used to always constantly thinking about what's your role in this project, in this team meeting, is then, you know what, today I'm going to sit back and allow Vera talk. I notice that other people won't allow her to talk. My purpose today is going to be in that meeting and say, hold on a minute, I think Vera had something to say. I've heard about her idea. And that happens. That was my purpose. I achieved it today. You know what, I felt good about that. Vera felt good about that. It made the other person be quiet. They heard us. So it could be simple as that. Is how my purpose today, I want to be a better ally. I want to allow other people to talk. Or, um, you know what? I'm going to be quiet. I always jump in with an idea. I'm very an extrovert, but I don't allow the small voices in that team to speak up. Today, I'm just going to keep quiet and say, you tell me what you think first. So for me, Paddy, the word purpose can be very massive and it drowns people. Well, I haven't got a purpose. It could be simply as, what do I want to achieve today, week, a month, a year, five years? Where do I see myself going? But is it just me, my partner? What do we do collectively? Where do we want to go collectively? In five years' time, my grandchildren will say, well, actually, what's the schools nearby? Do we need to move because of the children? So purpose can be driven. Hopefully you get used to asking those questions that are more creative than outside of your narrow thinking because we get so wrapped up in everyday thoughts. Does that help? Yeah, 100%. I think for me, that's really interesting that you break that down into purpose just doesn't have to be this big thing. Like, why am I here on the planet? That's a big question. <laughs> I think that's when it gets overwhelming. It's like, well, now I've got to put lots of pressure on myself to justify my existence. Why am I here? 
But if you think about the short-term purposes, that then really helps because if I think about today, then maybe what's my purpose this week? Then what's my purpose this month? It becomes a lot easier, doesn't it, when we break things down. So the other question I had, I mean, you have got some phenomenal experiences. Come on, you, you talked about how you've met with lots of the royal family and with it being such a topical topic at the moment, I'd love to hear one or two of your stories of when you've met with some of the royals. Do you have any stories you could share with us? Yeah, sure. My first encounter was actually, I mean, he's King Charles now, but he was Prince Charles then when, I don't know whether you, you probably, I don't know whether you, Vera won't, I think she's too young for that, but the, uh, the riots that we had across UK going back about nearly 15, 20 years ago, London was burning, Manchester was burning. There was all of these riots going on. And he then, Prince Charles, was really concerned about communities breaking up and why these riots were happening. So he came to corporates to say, look, I think you might be the answer. NGOs don't have the answers. Charities can't do this. Government hasn't got the money. But you are there. You are businesses. What can we do? So I had just then been pivoted into this role at that same time in 2008. And then they asked me to work with him. So we created the Business Connector program. We, we seconded individuals for a whole year. We paid for their salaries to go and find solutions in local problems. So that's my first encounter with King Charles. And he was so hands-on, Paddy. And literally, we ended up making this huge program with other 70 companies jumping in, seconding people, finding solutions. And I remember... And when I was taking him around and when you have those police cordons where the motorbike people go in to stop all the traffic, I was in one of those cars and I felt, oh my God, I'm pinching myself. I can't believe this is how to travel really, <laughs> to A to B. So I would say that was my first encounter with him, worked him quite a bit. And he started calling me the, he couldn't remember my name or, or couldn't pronounce my name often. And his first encounter would be, oh, you're the friendly banker, aren't you? So that's what he named me. And so when I got my OV, he, it was very humbling. Another encounter, I would say my son was always in the army cadets and he graduated at Sandhurst and I met Prince Philip and, uh, and I was in the queue, really proud of my son. He was holding the colors up. He was right in the front. And as he came along, Prince Philip being Prince Philip, he says, oh gosh, we've got a brown person here as well. <laughs> and the people around me, the, the shock on their face. But actually, he genuinely was trying to say in a positive way to actually, this is great to see diversity at last breaking Sandhurst. So yeah, I've got memories like that. But then meeting Her Majesty, as I said, especially in when we had those 50-odd ambassadors to launch the Commonwealth Trust Fund. And we didn't realize that she was going to turn up. And she did. And she was absolutely amazing. And I'm not... I've been very privileged in my career and in the Asian strategy. I've met Amitha Bachchan, I've met Shah Rukh Khan, I've met all of these celebrities that I used to do all of the award ceremonies on, but I've never been so dumbstruck until I met Her Majesty. She's just an amazing woman for somebody who's dedicated her 70 years of her life to service. She inspired me hugely. And, um, and Prince Harry, who then was working as a patron, I mean, what a lovely young man who was so passionate. And I met Megan for International Women's Day and we took her to Africa to do some of the stuff. It's so sad that they, what happened with the royals and they could have made such a huge impact. And for me, if I could only take them to one side and say, sometimes life is bigger than you. They've been given a calling card that could have made such a huge impact because people were so admired by them. 
youngsters were so listening to every single word Prince Harry and Meghan were saying. That for me is the sad part of what happened because I could visualize what they could bring to, to the, the foundation. But anyway, they're a family. They go through their own challenges as well. Hopefully that gives you a bit of color of what I've experienced. Oh, wow. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing those. And me and the wife, we've been watching The Crown and I know it's probably over-dramatized or whatever, but it gives you at least an insight into the type of life that some of the royals live. And I have to say, it, it's very much about similar to the Punjabi way in some ways. It's this whole it is. Kind of- That's what I mean. I wanted to take <laughs> Harry and Meghan to one side and say, do you know what? Just be patient. Think of the bigger picture. <laughs> this will work. <laughs> but anyway, I'm so, above, yeah. above no. my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm going to I'm going to shut up now because this is the end of the show and Vera knows what I'm going to do. I'm going to give her the last word. <laughs> Over to you, Vera. The last word. Oh, this is tough. I mean, it, it's so hard to think about the future and predict the future and think about what purpose should I be living out now for the future. So I really do like what you said about taking it one day at a time and letting it grow and evolve naturally. And yeah, but still considering the future, as this podcast is about um, helping to set people up with human skills for the future, what is one last tip, Kamal, that you would give for people to help prepare them for the future? One of the biggest soft skills I think now that I coach on that I think is missing and has been missing in the corporate world is empathy, is how do you become an empathetic leader that you're prepared to share your vulnerability so that wherever you come from, whatever social background you come from, rather than being shameful of it, be proud of it because it's that journey that's brought you to this moment that's given you the biggest courage. So Empathy, being empathetic to others, to really listen when somebody's talking. I think that is a new skill that really needs to be dialed up in every level from CEOs down towards a graduate. How can you be empathetic to your colleagues? Because if you show empathy, you'll get it back in holes. People will gravitate to you and say, you know what, Vera's one of those people I can go and have a chat to. She's always caring. She's always interested in me and she listens. So I think for me, and that empathy will then fuel curiosity. And if you're curious about somebody, curious about culture, curious about diversity, curious about how something that then takes away the ego in you, that you may have all the answers, is how you prepare to listen to other people's viewpoint. And that's when that diversity of thought comes together that you can come up with better solutions to your problems. So empathetic leadership leading to curiosity staying curious and putting your egos to one side oh what a lovely way to finish this episode so vera and kamal thank you so much for spending these moments with us and sharing your insights i've thoroughly enjoyed this this has to be one of my most favorite episodes i'm gonna say it it's official (laughs) there we go (laughs) thank you so much thank you it's really humble thank you there you have it folks it's the end of another insightful episode And as always, thank you so much for sticking around to listen to this episode and for helping support me and encouraging me to create more content for you guys. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, you'll find my email address in the show notes or equally head over to the website and click on the contact link. And I promise I will respond to every single message I receive. 
I'm always looking for your feedback. So if you'd like me to change things up or improve things, I would love your opinions. If there are topics that you'd like us to do future episodes on, or there are other great speakers that you are aware of, then please do mention them and uh, we'll see if we can make it happen. Thank you once again.